Hello, you're listening to FabRadioInternational.com or possibly the Starburst Family book, uh, Podcast. So you're listening to the Bookworm. Uh, my name is Ed Fortune and I'm here with my co-host... Cy Lloyd. Uh, the Bookworm is Starburst Magazine's number one book podcast. Uh, and we are here to talk about books, oddly enough. So, um, yeah, so what are you reviewing Today I will be reviewing Fool's Quest by Robin Hobb, which is so shiny. Terrible oh, radio. that is shiny, that Terrible is shiny. Terrible radio, but look at the cover, guys. The That's shiny. Cover. It's so shiny. Literally uh, shiny, silver. Also, colors. you could probably kill a man with that. Yeah. Mm. We actually have try. In, in store somewhere an interview with a cover designer. Yeah. Oh. She's absolutely lovely. Um, she, she used to drive around in a van with, like, with her artwork on the side. As well, amazing lady, very, very, very interesting. She does van detailing too. <laughs> she does indeed. <laughs> um, you got to make a living. Uh, I will be reviewing The Sandmen by Christopher Fowler, uh, and I believe coming up next, the big news. <laughs> Spook news. Um, I was I was in London on Thursday. That's Ooh. no, no, no. You're like, well, what's that got to do with book news? Well, I was there for a bad next, uh, a bad books. Um, that that branch of the Rebellion Enterprises. Rebellion are responsible for Rebellion video games. Uh, they're also responsible for 2000 AD, and they're mm. also responsible for Rivenstone, Solaris, and a bad books. Uh, whoever I'm a fan of Solaris's output, they do some fantastic genre fiction out there. And they're ten years old. Baden, ten years old. Ten. Uh, hence, hence there were Baden X party. Um, there were cakes. Ooh, so cakes. There, were, there were cakes. There were cakes. There it was were, a cake party. It was a cake party. It was in a, a bar in Soho called Behind the Blue Door, and it just basically it was this li- li- little kind of cubby hole. Please tell me there was a secret knock. Uh, there was normally a secret knock. Uh, However, there was, there was instead the uh, Ben, the PR guy, uh, sorry, <laughs> Will, the PR guy, just going, Ed, Ed, I see you appear to look lost. I'm like, where is Ed? Oh, it's here. Uh, yeah, to be frank, knowing your sense of geography, I'm stunned you've made it back. Which may sound harsh, dear, dear listener, know, but look, no. I'm thinking there's like a secret entrance, it's a book party, it, it's sounding a little bit like that scene with the Countdown Winners Club from... Um, uh, the IT crowd where you go into a secret place and <laughs> I have no idea what okay. you mean okay <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no no, it was it was lovely um, the likes of Adrian Tchaikovsky were there David Thomas Murray isn't it that was there uh, John Oliver was there uh, Lavi Tidal was there uh, Jonathan Green was there um, piles and piles and piles of the authors of which names I will have missed were there um, they launched their, their new uh, Abaddon theme, um, which is uh, Alien Invasion in a slightly kind of spaced horror comedy sort of way. Okay. That's the general general kind of subgenre of it. 
there's a novella which will be coming out soon and uh, there'll be a whole slew of new novellas with new talent coming out uh, which is the result of their recent uh, entries uh, talking about submissions entries actually um, just a reminder that Fox Spirit Books are looking for um, polite horror you go on the Fox Spirit <laughs> website polite horror yeah. they, 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 want, they want kind of genteel See. Genteel horror. They don't want any slasher. They don't want any gore. They, they want no, they want intellectual stuff. They, they want more intellectual, you know, Jews and Worcester meat Cthulhu. I can understand that. Does it have to be period or can it be contemporary? I believe it can be contemporary. Okay. Uh, I suspect I, fi- I suspect they're slightly angling towards the, the, the period side of things. Right. Because, you know, th- this is not perhaps a genteel age. No, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not, but it's, it's more like it's more sort of what's that sound rather than what's that smell kind of horror. Yes. Okay. What is that stain? Not what is that dripping there? Yes. Yeah. Why is it on my head? That's not red pen. <laughs> um, but enough about Friday night. Uh, moving on. Moving on. No, Abaddon was great. It was lovely to see people. Had a lot of fun. Um, let's see. Jen Campbell, author of Weird Things Customers Say in Bookshops and Bookshop Book. Uh, has pledged to write 100 poems in 48 hours to Ooh. raise money for the Book Bus, which is a charity that serves communities in Af- Africa, Asia, and South America using mobile libraries. The challenge will happen in the 6th and 7th of October uh, in advance of Books on My Bag celebration. Uh, books on My Bag is that thing where you end up with way too many books in a bag. Uh, it's that one. Um, books in My Bag is a great, great fundraiser. Uh, we're quite a fan. Uh, she said to the bookseller, "It's in that perfect time to su- uh, to support the, the the book bus, spreading a love of books and reading worldwide." There we go. Uh, what else is happening in the world of news? Um, well, there is a September two thousand and fifteen author earnings report. Um, apparently, I'm frantically trying to read it. There's a lot of stuff in here. Okay. Uh, essentially, th- there's th- there's a, a shrinking market share, presumably of is that self-published authors for the big five. Actually, it's okay. saying yeah. I, I believe the the conversation that's happening is that people are saying, oh well, the market in general is sh- shrinking, and then self-published authors are like, well, it's not shrinking for us, and the big five are like, no, it's definitely shrinking for everyone. And then there's a whole backwards and forwards where it's like, well, the investment is better these days and the pickup is better, but the overall buying yep. because people buy digital books. Uh, Amazon's overall ebook sales have continued to grow in both unit and dollar terms, fueled by a strong shift in consumer ebook purchasing behaviour away from traditionally published ebooks and toward indie published and Amazon imprint published ebooks. So the people are going, it's going down, it's going down at the AAP, which is the Association of American Publishers, which, which includes the Big Five, Penguin Random House, HarperCollins, Simon Schuster, Macmillan, Hatch, Hachette. Uh, they're seeing their things go down. Everybody in the AAP is seeing their things go down. Okay. Uh, there's 1,200 participating publishers in the AAP, uh, but the Big Five collect, uh, account for about 80% of those sales. Um, as you would kind of expect them to do, really. So, though the AAP members' sales are declining, but people are going, people are searching out other stuff. Is essentially what appears to be happening here. 
So rather than a decline in reading, what we have is a shift in reading habits. Uh, we've got certainly got a shift away, it seems, from the big five, which I, I guess is kind of maybe uh, reflective of what's happening in other media forms as well. You know, mm. you've got the rise of um, indie web series producers, um, a, a rise in indie music pe- producers, people publishing, uh, producing and publishing their own CDs and flogging them on tour and concerts and stuff, uh, maybe I mean, away from the big uh, music studios. I'm increasingly seeing more and more of the author model where it's like, I will write you a short story uh, every two weeks. Um, providing that you continue to support my Patreon yeah, stuff, yeah. and it's certainly working for web comics more than it's working for for mm-hmm. written works, but they're not getting as noticed as much. I suspect as soon as we hit that kind of peak, you know, media exposure, the, the movie gets you know the movie version of Wall hits. Mm. Yeah. Um, that said, I've got to say I am, I keep getting approached by indie authors who uh, are like, oh yes, well, it's my first book and I intend to be the next Hugh Howie and I'm sitting there going, maybe you should wait until the book's out before you claim to be the next Hugh Howie. <laughs> you, know, you know, fingers crossed. But And also, as always, um, if you're interested in becoming an indie writer or an indie author and you're going for the um, kind of the indie model where you basically deal directly to the general public, be very careful, watch what you're doing with taxes, Read various advices. Advice. There are services out there that will take your work and not give it back to you. So please read the terms and conditions. Uh, mm. There's always been services out there. Actually, that pay for a lawyer. Actually, talk. Yes. Actually, you know, if you know someone who's a lawyer, give them money. If you don't know someone who's a lawyer, give them more money because you don't know them. Because the the, the maybe maybe hundred and fifty couple hundred pounds it will cost you will over your lifetime be money very well spent. Plug for, for lawyers there. The the judges for the Costa Book Awards have been announced. Uh, no, which one's the Costas? Um, that's a good question. Um, Ooh, was that telling? Was that telling? There's quite a few book awards. The cost. I mean, the Costas get you know a fair amount of media coverage. We are being a little bit mean. Well, yeah, they do. But you know, so, so do the bookers, and I couldn't tell you tell you what they're for. First novel, novel, biography, poetry, and children's five different categories. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's it's Matt Hick, uh, Louise Doty, and Julia Corpus are amongst the judges. Um, poetry, children's biography, first novel, novel. Uh, we will find out a fourth of January, twenty sixteen. This is the one that always happens on a, it's because it's the slow news start of the award period, isn't it? Mm. It's you know we, we find out what's going on. Uh, sounds all right. Sounds quite good. We don't know who. There's been no shortlist announced as yet, but uh, we're sure to find out soon enough. Um, I didn't even know these existed. The 2015 Kyoto Award winners. Oh. The Furry Writers Guild. <laughs> I shouldn't like Now, that. are the writers furry? Are the themes furry? Excellent in amph- anthropomorphic literature. I see. Now, in, hey, at, fair at, play. at Rainforest in Seattle, apparently, which is the name of the convention. Okay. I'm, I'm, I shouldn't laugh. No, no. Um, they've got a, a big fan base. They are genre, very, very genre. I'm just imagining very genre because it says the Furry Writers Guild, and I, I know that there's people who are writing, you know, anthropomorphic fiction, and it appeals to people who who like that kind of yeah anthropomorphism. I just have this image of this guy in a snippy costume on a typewriter, 
Uh, well, it was a dark and stormy, stormy night. night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, 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 a, a variant of which is, of course, my my avatar on various social media I mean, sites. That, I imagine when they're doing the writing, they probably just wear like a token furry piece just for comfort, <laughs> rather than the huge. Balls. Yeah, yeah. So it'll just be like a pair of kitty ears on a headband kind of thing, because otherwise it's it's going to make it hard to write, isn't it? Uh, even even if you're using one of those uh, voice recognition programs, you've got a full head Snoopy mask on. A furry thing. Well, you know, Snoopy was a prolific author. He was. Mm. He, he was very skilled writer. He wrote well. a lot. Um, I, I'm loving. It, it kind of makes me want to read some of it. I, for example, the best short story I, will, I, I want to read just out of curiosity. It's mm. called Jackalope Wives. By Ursula Vernon. Now, Ursula Vernon is also an illustrator, uh, and she, uh, you know, she's she's actually a great writer. So, yeah, there you go. Though much respect for Ursula Vernon. Uh, I've heard of Renee Carter Hall as well, who wrote The Huntress, which is based in Nevada. I've not read any of her stuff. Uh, I've not read any of Off the Beaten Path by Ruckus or Abandoned Places, edit, which is an anthology edited by Tall Hawk. Do you know what? I might, I might give it a look. Yes. Apparently, Jackalope Wives was also nominated for a Nebula Award in 2014. It was indeed. Mm. Talking about the Nebulas, the SFWA, who, who manage the Nebulas... Have a oh, look at that smoothness. It is. Thanks, thanks, thanks for that. Um, have uh, a recruitment anthem performed by Empress Stardust and the Eunuchs of the Forbidden City, bringing you Radio SFWA. They've written a recruitment a- 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 anthem. We did listen to it. We did debate. I tried we to listen to it. We did debate whether we were going to play it, and then we decided it was probably not the best of plans. You can certainly find it on the, the internet. You can Google search and YouTube uh, Radio do, uh, SFWA. Um, yeah, I'm not entirely sure it's uh, really an anthem, but um, certainly I've forgotten what it is. It's or not anthemic. The, the, the picture that goes with it disturbed me. It, it's a man with nipples for star- stars for nipples. Yeah. Stars for nipples. Stars for nipples. Yes, anyway. Uh, Sounds like a charity. I don't know. That's total by Africa. Um, A telephone on the hook. (laughs) Yes, I think that's it for news, to be honest. (laughs) Shall we we move on? Slow day. Should we we review some books? Very strange place to take the news. This is Fab Radio International. My name is Kevin Steen. Hey, what's up? This is Matt Stryker. It's the psycho shooter himself, Drake Younger. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Adam Cole, and you're listening to The Sunday Falsies. The Sunday Falsies is your weekly dose of pro wrestling from the UK and all over the world. Join Craig and Gas every Sunday, 3 till 5, right here on Fab Radio International. Enjoy, and we'll see you front row. Got something to share? Want to get your message heard? Fab Radio International can help you reach the right audience with our range of targeted advertising and sponsorship packages. Find out more by clicking the advertise link on fabradiointernational.com and get in touch today. Speed Shop is a place to discuss, debate, and just waffle on about old and interesting motors, mainly, but not exclusively, of the internal combustion variety. 
We'll have auction reports, buyer's guides, show previews and restoration stories to inspire, excite and occasionally terrify. That's the Speed Shop with me, Steve Berry, here on Fab Radio International. Whether you're an acoustic virtuoso or a rock god, Fab Music Store. At Fab, we buy and sell new and used kit with guitar brands like Faith, Breed Love, Lag and Westfield and Dynacord and Electro Voice sound systems. We hire sound systems from £60 and have guitars for sale from £39.99. With ukuleles, banjos and all the lights, leads, stands and mixers you can imagine. For sales, hire and service, Fab Music Store. Little Underbank, Stockport. Visit fabmusicstore.co.uk The Gay Agenda on Fab Radio International. All the offbeat chat and debate you'd expect from militant liberal gay warriors. Mm. UKIP donor has said that gay people are incapable of love. Is that so? You know what they say about homophobes. Well, yes, they're all closeted. The Gay Agenda, 9pm till 11pm, every Thursday on FabRadioInternational.com. I've been struck by lightning and electrocuted. So third time will be the charm, right? Third time I'll get my electric it's powers. Struck by lightning. Yeah. Where? Where? When and where? On my head. Is that why you're so weird. <laughs> <laughs> Listen again on mixcloud.com forward slash gay agenda radio. Are you looking for a little slice of Ireland in Manchester? Then look no further than the Shamrock Bar and Grill. Our hearty home cooked Irish menu is served daily. We have live music every weekend. Fridays, rock and indie. Saturday, traditional Irish bands. And Sunday, the live session, hosted by Angie and our musical friends. Should drop in for the crack. Taste the finest pint of Guinness in all of Manchester. And don't forget about our large covered smoking area with a wood-burning fire. You'll be sure of a warm welcome at the Shamrock Bar and Grill, 17 Bengal Street, Manchester, M46AQ. Or for more information, go to www.shamrock-irishbar.co.uk. So I'm reviewing The Sandman on Fab Radio International on the Bookworm. You can catch us on uh, Twitter at Radio Bookworm, on Facebook as Radio Bookworm, and also on other forms of social media as Radio Bookworm. We will be changing the name of the show shortly. Ooh. Um, I don't like change, Ad. Well, it's, it's Fear change. change. It's a good change. It's good okay. Change. okay. Um, it's at least 10 P's worth of change. <sighs> well, there you go. Uh, uh, we are don't lose that dance over we're going to change the name to Brave New Words uh, which will align with the column in Starburst magazine which is also called Brave New Words it's all about the synergy it's all about the synergy it's also all about the better name <laughs> to be honest there's a lot of bookworms currently out there in the world um, but before I started talking about that I was saying that I'm about to review The Sandmen by Christopher Fowler which is on Solaris Books which we were just talking about mm-hmm. Um you might remember that about maybe six months ago, I think, I reviewed a book called Nectophobia by mm. Christopher Fowler. Now, the plot of Nectophobia was that it was a woman who was uh, she married a Spanish man. She was living in Spain. 
he was off at work all the time she was in this old dusty house and she was part of an expat community this takes a similar premise so we mm. have Lee uh, Lee uh, Lee Roy and their 15 year old daughter Cara um, Roy and Lee have been married for some time uh, they have a daughter they, he was unemployed. He couldn't find work in the UK for various reasons. They've had a bit of a rough patch of their their, their marriage, and um, essentially, um, they've picked up sticks, moved to Dubai. A big project in Dubai. They've they've built an island in Dubai, as they do. As People they always do. just build islands in Dubai. And there's this place called Green World, which is a futuristic beach complex which is designed to appeal to everybody who is rich it's a play plaything for the mega rich yep. that's the point of the project mm. Roy is a civil engineer and he's essentially been offered absolute shed loads of money mm. piles and piles of cash if he will just you know abandon everything and take his family to Dubai mm. so Lee, uh, see Lee or Leah. I'm trying to work out. I always, I always struggle sometimes with the way that because it's just L E A. Yeah. Like, I would say Lee, and some people would say Leah. Anyway, depending, I don't know how she pronounces it because I've never met a fictional character. But I did you can like, ask her. Open the book. I did. I did. I did like the fictional character an awful lot. So, Kara is that sort of teenager who's still trying to work out what's going on in the world, still mm. trying to you know make her own mark um, immediately you find a crowd of similar minded people and runs off and starts doing social media things and building various bits and pieces there's a problem in Dubai obviously with the internet so they they are creating kind of kind of light and fluffy kind of pop noise style website e stuff okay. to, to chill out and she is quite angry at her parents for leaving her with a world that is a mess and she doesn't like the idea of Dreamworld in general. She thinks Dreamworld is a terrible idea because it's you know it's another thing for the mega rich. The mega rich don't need anything else. We need to start looking after people. Yeah. So so that's Kara. Meanwhile, uh, Roy has worked worked to. Oh, he 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 comes home, sleeps, goes back to work. Yeah. Pretty much constantly working. He's on the the hot ticket to being a director already, even though they've just started mm. working there. Uh, the book opens with a low-level migrant worker d- investigating something something on the beach, uh, something going wrong, and immediately in the middle of this hot desert sand being turned to ice. Okay. Turns out that you, you're like, ooh, that's spooky. Yeah. And it's explained in the book that this was a, a broken uh, pipe of Freon because they, they wanted to make the beach, that beach area, cooler. So right. people could walk from one end to the other end to the casino across the beach. Okay. So they wanted a cooler area, and because of you know this guy has died, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and people are dying. The low level migrant workers are dying in due to due to unsafe practices in the construction of the entire complex. Sure. Lee used to be a magazine journalist when they were in England. She used to actually be the breadwinner at one point when Roy didn't have his job. Yeah. And she starts to become very kind of... She wants to know more about what's going on. She wants to investigate more. She becomes sort of an investigative journalist at this point. It's interesting. At one point she says, I'm not an investigative journalist. And she keeps prodding at things. And she's basically... She's just very nosy. Mm. Rather than, you know, I will use my my special... Because she doesn't have any strong investigative insight... 
but she does find clues out in her own way. Everyone else in this gated community, and it is a gated community that they're living in, mm. um, don't talk about what's going on. Don't talk about. Um, you know, don't talk about the environment. Don't talk about the the migrant workers. There's an underpass, not far from where they are, mm. which is full of the migrant workers, where stuff happens and things go on, right? Rather unpleasant things, but they don't talk about that. People have died within the community. Within the gated community. Within the gated community. And they try not to talk about that as well. There is something terribly wrong with Dreamworld. Yep. So that's the premise. What's the book actually about? The book is about the secrets that men keep. The book is about lies told between conspiracies to, uh, to, to foster a sense of wealth and power in community amongst very small elite groups. Mm. Kind of topical. Yes. Yeah, very much. It's about the, the sins that men do. It's about the secrets that we keep. There's a wonderful moment where someone turns around to Lee and says, you keep trying to work out what is wrong with this entire community and what's wrong with this place. And you don't realise that what's wrong is you're all foreigners and you have no right to be here. And it's mm. like, that's an interesting take on, you know, you're the colonists, you're the aliens, this is not your culture. That It's an interesting perspective. Mm. And it's an interesting look. It's full of little moments like that. It's it's about colonialism. It's a, it's about capitalism. It's about money. It doesn't sound genre. It sounds interesting. There is a. There is something. In I the see. Sand. I see. There is something in the sand. Okay. And I'm working around it because the book also works very very hard to work around it as well. Okay, that's that. That's fair enough. There is a there is a slow and a gentle pace to all this all the way through. Same mm. with nyctophobia. Nyctophobia is not terribly genre except when it is. Yeah, uh, Christopher Farley is not terribly genre of this except when he is. Mm. Um, it's slow, it's gentle, and it's very compelling. Okay, it is full of misdirects and redirects all the way through. Um, I would struggle to put this on a shelf I would not call it horror I would not call it a thriller um, I'd just call it a bloody good book to be honest Yeah. I enjoyed it immensely I was nicely weirded out uh, just when I thought I knew where this was going and what it was going and what it was going to do it, the sand shifted and mm. there was something else going on instead it sounds like there's a lot of interesting, a lot of good family dynamics going on. And it is. What, fam- what families think of each other. And the, the, there's a kind of, I mean, it's mostly through uh, Lee's eyes and mostly through, you know, what she, how she translates things. Um, this would make a great BBC two-hour drama or, you know, four episodes, mini-sword sort of thing. Yeah. It is creepy. Um, if I had to describe it as anything, I'd describe it as an elegant horror. Yeah. Much like Nyctophobia was. If you've read Nyctophobia and you liked it, you will enjoy this. It's not what you expect. But then it's Christopher Fowler, it's not meant to be. If you like Christopher Fowler, Christopher Fowler is producing some brilliant stuff right now. Uh, if you like gentle horror, you're not af- if you're not a fan of the gross out, but you're a fan of the creepies, yes. 
Um, also, if you have a social conscience and you have opinions on the one percent and and you know, mm. capitalism, then I think you'd enjoy it as well. Um, so yeah, so I, I enjoyed it quite a bit, and that's the Sandmen by Christopher Fowler out on Solaris Books. Cool. Across the world, 24 hours a day, this is Fatboyian International. So, we were lucky enough to catch up with a family guy writer and also creator of the autobiography of James T. Kirk, David A. Goodman, and this is the interview here. This is Fab Radio International. Goodman, welcome to the bookworm. Thank you, thank you for having me. So, what can you tell us about the autobiography of James T. Kirk? Uh, well, that's a big question. <laughs> I um, uh, The book is a uh, an in-world uh, book in the sense that if you, you know, if you read it, the, it, it takes the uh, universe of Star Trek completely seriously and... Uh, that uh, this is Captain Kirk telling us about his life towards the end of his life. So what sort of life experiences did you have to draw on in order to write like Kirk? Uh, well, I, I, I'm not a starship captain, but uh, I, I'd like to be one when I grow up. I think um, the, uh, the, the main thing that I had to sort of connect to was who is this man that we, we, we as an audience obviously have a very clear idea of who Kirk is uh, on the outside. And so I had to figure out how that person came to be uh, and, and really who he is on the inside. But I had to do it in such a way that it didn't contradict anything we already had seen. Uh, and I think the main thing that I came up with that I that I, that the thing I'm most proud of is just a connection that I made, uh, which is that if in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, we find out that Kirk had a son. Uh, and when, if you backtrack uh, to, the, to the timeline of the original Star Trek series, he had a son, he had that son the whole time he was captain of the Enterprise and he wasn't seeing him. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. That that means that Kirk, like many men, is a is a kind of absent father. He's choosing his career and his life over being home with his family. And speaking for myself as a father and a son, uh, both, I had I, I I really wanted to explore that. How did that How did he, that he get to that point in his life and make that decision? Because even if you take what happens in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, um, if, you, if you look at that movie, it, it says that the mother of his son wanted him to leave, and, and even, even in that case, he's still making a decision to leave. And uh, that, that was important to me. So it was very, so going back to his childhood, what were the events that led him to be this kind of driven person who would prioritize his work over family. 
You also draw heavily on Edith Keeler, who's a character from The City on the Edge of Forever. Um, and arguably that episode and The Wrath of Khan are two of the most popular Star Trek episodes or Star Trek stories um, amongst the people who know the show. Was that deliberate? Did you pick the two, one of the two most popular things or did it just play out that way? Well, there's, there, there are two reasons that I did, um, uh, that, that I focus on, on City on the Edge of Forever. One is, yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a popular episode, but it's a popular episode because Kirk has this terrible moral dilemma of choosing uh, the universe or choosing uh, the love of this woman. And, and, and that, that decision really uh, interested me. Uh, but the other reason, which was uh, more practical in some way, is that in exploring uh, areas that the audience, is al- the Star Trek fans are already familiar with, uh, I was looking for uh, holes to fill. That is, I wanted to be in in the events of the original series, but I didn't want to just uh, be summarizing things we were already familiar with. I wanted to find a hole or a gap to fill. And the, the great thing about City on the Edge of Forever, when you watch the episode, is y- you really can't tell how long Kirk and Spock are stuck in the past. And it gave me a great opportunity to fill in that time and say they were there for a couple of months. And it changed Kirk in a in a substantive way, and made him uh, made that decision to let Edith die that much more profound. Um, so, so those were sort of the two reasons that I focused on on that particular episode. It it gave me uh, leg room to to do more. Um. You, you, the way you explored the story. Um, a couple of times in, in, the, episode, in the, the the book, um, you, what you do is uh, it's, it's certainly later in the book. You you look at one or two of the movies and you kind of retranslate the way the the way the events happened. How tempting was it for you to tinker more with the uh, with the series? Well, I it, it, it it's actually I had the opposite reaction uh, as a Star Trek fan, as a diehard Star Trek fan, I was overly concerned with not doing anything that would piss me off as a fan if I read the book. Um, so I, I had no desire to tinker. I, I, the harder part is, is how do I use what everybody knows and still make it interesting? Um, but I was, uh, I, I put a, a real uh, um, constriction on myself to not mess with anything because I knew that if I was just a fan picking up this book and reading it, if, if I had, if the author had messed with events that I was very familiar with, I, I would have thrown the book away. Uh, so that, that to me was uh, paramount that I, that I not mess with uh, things. How tempted are you to, uh, to do the other autobiographies? Are we likely to see one of it Spock? Uh, I, I mean, it obviously, I think it probably depends on how well this book does. So if people want to see a, another one uh, by the book. Um, uh, the, uh, I think Spock's a really interesting character. The, the, the great thing about doing Kirk is that he, he dies young, relatively speaking. He dies at 60 in Star Trek Generations. And, so, and, and Spock, on the other hand, 
lives up till then and then lives at least another 80 years. And so, so the hard part of doing a Spock autobiography is filling in all that time in an interesting way. Uh, but, but yes, to answer your question, I, I would love to do Spock. And uh, I think that would be a, a very different but very fun book. And then I think a great, if, if there was a Spock book, I think then you'd want to do a McCoy book and you'd want them all to sort of interlace in some way. I think that would be a fun, great project. Do you know if William Shatner has seen the book yet? Well, I, I was on uh, stage with Shatner at Comic-Con, and he read excerpts aloud from it. Uh, it was it was quite a, an amazing uh, experience uh, to, to be on stage with him. And he, he made a lot of fun of my book, but he also... He also seemed to have some respect for it. Uh, and so that was an amazing uh, experience. But I think that the excerpts he read aloud on stage is the only portions of the book that he's ever going to read. Uh, he's a very busy man. What's next for you? I'm sorry, I lost that question. Say that again. What's next? What's next? Um, well, I'm currently the, one of the head writers of Family Guy and... Um, so I, I continue to do that, and um, I uh, um, and and I, I'm hoping that this book this book uh, succeeds so that I could do another one. How when, when you're doing a show like Family Guy, and then obviously you know you go home and you, you start writing a Star Trek autobiography, and then you you have to go and write Family Guy. How how tempting is it to, to fill it full of Star Trek gags? Uh, well, you know, you gotta, you gotta pick and choose your moments. You don't want to, you don't want to over, you want to over, overdo it. But we, we definitely, we, we, we're definitely, we're definitely, uh, we definitely have taken our, our shots and, and had our fun. How, how different are the two projects? How, you know, do you have to get yourself into a different place to write such well, different the, lines? Well, the guys written, written uh, as a collaboration I mean, I'm, I'm just one of, of a lot of very talented writers working on that show and so that's a that's a collaboration of uh, you know sitting in a room with other writers pitching pitching ideas and working together and writing a book is the exact opposite I'm sitting alone in a room trying to get in my head and uh, write book but the uh, the one one thing that's similar is you have to you have to get in your head and, and solve problems and uh, but but that's the only similarity. Otherwise, they're very different. Uh, and finally, uh, truth or beauty? Truth or beauty? Um, uh, truth or beauty? Well, for me, it's truth because uh, uh, I'm pretty ugly. So. Uh, <laughs> I'll go with truth. Uh, David Goodman, thank you very much for your time. Well, it was a pleasure, and thank you so much. This is Fab Radio International. Okay. So, I'm Siloid, and today I am going to be reviewing Fool's Quest by Robin Hobb. Um, it's an absolutely gorgeous looking book. I'm looking at the, the dust sheet is silvered, 
There is an image of a crow with a couple of white feathers in it. Um, and it's it's absolutely beautiful looking book. It's the latest in Robin Hobbs' uh, Fits and the Fool trilogy, book two of it, which is itself a sequel to the Tawny Man trilogy, which is itself a sequel to <laughs> the Farseer trilogy. I've done, I did a, a little potted history of the Farseer and the Tawny Man in a previous bookworm, and I believe that Ed has done Fool's Assassin. I have done the first one of that series. It's also in of itself a bit of a sequel to the Lives of Traders series. It kind of is, yeah, because she, she's got a another series going on in that world and the, the stories started to overlap uh, quite significantly. Uh, I've not read The Life Ship Traders, actually, but I will do. Um, it's got dragons in it. It's got dragons in it. Well, the the Tawny Man had dragons in it as well, and there is talk of dragons in Fool's Quest. Moving on, um, it's hard to review a book like this without spoilers, but I'm going to endeavour to try. Um, it's... She writes these books in, in, in a way which is epic in scale, but because it's focused around the personal, it's all uh, first-person narrative. It doesn't have that kind of epic um, sort of legend-telling feel to it. It's it's very personal, and it feels quite realistic in that way. Um, for those new to it, the protagonist is a chap called Fitz, who is uh, of illegitimate royal blood. Burdened from a young age with uh, secrecy and all the responsibility of royalty, but with none of the overt power. Um, he's an assassin, uh, somewhat of a mage, uh, and a scholar. He's saved the kingdom multiple times from uh, usurpers, pirates, uh, magical people from over the sea. Um, but the thing about Fitz is he's burdened with secrecy. Um, he's always he's always had to keep everything about himself a secret, even from some of the people that he loves, and that's that's what makes him a, a sort of a compelling and interesting character to read about. Um, by the time this book comes along, Fitz is sixty years old. Um, how you can have a sort of epic fantasy action hero character at sixty is is dealt with rather handily in the previous set of books um, due to a magical accident. His body doesn't get much older than 35. Um, which, it, it, it kind of, it, it, it sounds cheesier than it is. <laughs> I think it works because the character himself is gloriously grumpy. Yeah. He, he, he is a 60-year-old man. And he's, you know, when he was a boy, he was a bit of a cynic and a bit kind of, yeah. you know, a bit, a bit naive. And as he's gotten older, he's become more weary, well, world-wise and worldly-wise. But then he's replaced his kind of naive cynicism of like worldly grumpiness. Yes, so yeah, he's a grumpy old, he's a grumpy old guy. There's a, there a brilliant bit in the last book where, you know, you know, in, in, in Highlander where you know he's there with his wife and he's watching his wife get old, and it's all kind of romantic. What you don't see in that, but you do see in this, is younger women coming up, coming up to him. He's just watching them like a granddad, like might, might watch a young woman. Enjoying herself, she comes on and, th- and then comes on to him, and he goes, "What do I do?" <laughs> um, yeah, he, he's 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 an interesting character, and it, it's done really well. I'll, I'll cover into why I think it's done well later, and why it's not a kind of cheesy, overblown supernatural soap opera, <laughs> which it could sound like. Really, if this guy's gone through all these things but has remained youthful. It, it kind of sounds like an excuse, but as you read it, it works really well. Um, in the, 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 the last book, um, Fitz had kind of 
he he'd sort of earned a kind of retirement from all his adventures. Um, the, the 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 few people in the world who knew he exists um, have sort of let him go and, and retire to this sort of uh, small mansion with, with a nice farm on it. And he can go there with his with his with his um, with, with 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 a woman he's he's loved his whole life, and he can settle in. Um, uh, and it's great. It's really, really nice. And in fact, an awful lot of the, of the previous book is just about a guy living his life, and it's really sweet. There's lots of pottering around. There's lots of pottering around, but if, presumably, if you've read that book, you've read the others, and you kind of you want that for him. You want this character to finally get a bit of peace. So there's a bit of that, but occasionally things creep in. He'll get odd kind of messages, which may or may not be from his old friend, the fool. Um, he has a, a daughter, a second daughter, a little, little young girl called B, and um, he, he tries his best to, to raise her, but because she seems to be, in most people's eyes, uh, a little bit special, it, and he himself isn't exactly good with kids, it's, it's a challenge for him, so it's an interesting read in that way. At the end of the last book... Um, you know, the, the, the book that's mostly been about pottering around sort of explodes into life. There's, you know, he uh, he meets his old friend the fool, who's all broken and he's been tortured, and B herself, uh, the, the the daughter, gets kidnapped, and there's fights and action and violence like that hasn't been through the whole book, and this book is is, is the follow up to that, and this is really about sort of Fitz coming back out of retirement. Uh, and returning to to bookkeep where the, the the previous sets of books have been have been set and how how does he deal with that and he's got he's got the same challenges to face as he faced when he was a young man the secrecy etc and you read it and you, you and, and he approaches it as a mature man would and you think great he's going to come to it with experience um, maybe he'll come out from the shadows and he kind of does a bit before promptly retreating back into the shadows because that's all he knows that's all he can do. Um, Robin Hobb, as we all know, likes to torture her characters. Not uh, occasionally, literally, but mostly by they just do it to themselves. I think that's what she said yeah. in, 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 in an interview. And this is this is exactly what happens with Fitz. He comes out into the sunlight. He he starts to lean on his friends and rely on them, and then realizes that comes with consequences and responsibilities. So instantly pulls back away. Um, anyone who who has ever been a bit of an outsider. Will deal will, will love Fitz, and um, which is why I think he's such a successful character in the genre market. Um, he, he really is. He's, he's, a, he's a classic outsider character. Um, the, the the way she writes um, is is enchanting. Uh, she 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 writes animals well. There's always an animal companion in these books. Uh, the, the cover on this one is a crow. Um, Fitz in the past has been his animal companion has been this pet wolf Night Eyes um, not really a pet actually more it's sort of like his brother really but he, he's sort of in mourning for this wolf but he's still in mourning now 25 years after this wolf has passed away of, 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 of fine old age so another aspect of this book is he, he, he keeps meeting all these animals that want to be his friend but he can't because he feels like he's been cheating on a wolf that's been dead for 25 years if he bonds with them Um and, and the way he communicates with the animals is enchanting. She writes 
brilliantly about um, real life issues as well. Uh, what a lot of fantasy does is they'll turn it into a metaphor. So, say for example, uh, you know, an addiction to magic could be a metaphor for drug addiction. What Robin Hobb does is doubles this up. So Fitz will deal with not only resisting the addiction to magic, but also resisting drug addiction, because the way you resist magic is by taking drugs. Um, and she, does, she, 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 she doubles this. She'll double, uh, say, a real-life trauma, like post-traumatic stress disorder or something like that, with uh, a, a magical incident whereby he's, he's had to pour some of his memories away. Um, into into a stone dragon to bring it to life. So thus, he spends ten years isolated on his own, uh, like someone with PTSD might. Um, so, she, she, she doubles these effects up, and it's it makes the characters believable and interesting and rich. Um, so, the villains in this book, moving on, are the uh, these characters called the servants of Clarez who are, they're basically a religious sect, and they, historically, they believe and follow uh, this, this sort of prophet character, who Fitz has known, uh, called the Fool. Except, it turns out, after thousands of years, the church has turned in on itself, and rather than following the prophet and worshipping him, they rather want to keep him in a box, and use all his prophecies for their own. Yeah, it's kind of, it, it's a, that is a big metaphor, isn't it? It's kind of, kind of an obvious parallel. It's an obvious to parallel to, to real world religions that, in the end, they uh, you know what, what they what they would do to their own prophets. In fact, isn't there a Dostoevsky thing about that? Um, where if, if Christ came back, what the church would do? It's quite, <laughs> it's quite a common trope um, yeah. of that whole. I think my favorite my favorite yeah. one is Garth Ennis's take of um, a yes, but who would look. But surely he'd look much better with that Fender Stratocaster than he does on that boring old cross. Well, that's a different yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. So the, the 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 servants of Clarez have, have basically taken their faith in, in in the White Prophet and they've they've perverted it and they they keep the processes and they use them for their own ends. And again, we have, we have a double metaphor because what they do with those prophecies is they turn them to their own advantage. Um, so it becomes a metaphor for the stock market. Uh, the, the the fool who is the white prophet gives an example um, what would you do if you knew about a prophecy that in a certain area that relies on sheep there was going to be a disease that takes out all the sheep well says says Fitz you could you could develop work to develop a cure or you could buy up an awful lot of sheep and wool goods and things like that and make a huge profit out of it so she, yeah, it's 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 about worldwide evils in a very broad stroke sense, um, and someone's personal struggle kind of against that and against their own inner demons. It's big. <laughs> Robin Hobb clearly, uh, I mean, she loves her characters very much as well, mm. and um, I think we should talk about that next. Okay.
So, yes, uh, writers and their relationship with the characters that they create. Do you have to, as a writer, like the character that you're writing? I'm not... It depends. I think you have to like writing them. It's, it depends, I think, that, that there's a, an audience relationship as well, whereby you can like a character on the screen, but if you met them in real life, you'd think they're a right balland. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fair. I mean... I think clearly um, Christopher Bala has a very, mm. very much sympathy for mm. expats abroad um, and being out of their depth and trying to understand foreign cultures. And I think mm. that's one of the things that you know he's very sympathetic to that particular experience. Right. And he writes about that very well because you can see, you know, clearly they are people that he knows in his life that he's based these characters on that right. he has has gentleness towards. Or at least finds fun to write about. Yeah. Um, whereas, as we say, Robin Hobb seems to really enjoy torturing her characters, or yeah. just letting them torture themselves. But I think that's different from not liking them. I think putting them through the ringer is different from not liking them. It's almost like a test, like you're testing them, isn't it? Mm. Um, I've just started reading something. I started reading it this morning, and I'm eight pages in, and I'm going. Does the author actually like their lead character at all? Because the way it's been written, and, and admittedly, I am only eight pages in, mm. but the way it's been written is like, this, this character is not coming across well at all. And this is our lead character for what it t- turns out to be an ongoing series of books. There's about 24 of them now. You see, what, what, uh, an interesting comparison is Bill Cornwall's Sharp series. Uh-huh. He describes Sharp as an amazingly cunning man that he would never like to meet. And mm. you know he's when 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 asked about the character, he's like, oh, he would be amazing, and he would do all these things that I could never do. Um, but he's someone that I could never, you know, form a relationship mm. with because he's so remarkable and different from where at where I am. And comparing that to Dan Abnett's car- character of Abraham Gant, now Gant's ghost are very much sharp in space, yep. to the point where they've admitted you know it's sharp in space, and Ibrahim is basically sharp in many ways but Dan d- would not doesn't you know if he actually met Gaunt it's fascinating intelligent gentleman but at the end of the day the guy's a fascist who herds people into their doom mm. you know the, the the world that he lives in and the person that he is is not a nice person despite the fact he's written as a hero I think when we're talking about heroic fiction, there's a very particular way that you can like your characters. I mean, there's the whole thing about never meet your heroes. And heroes are different. They're supposed to be a breed apart, aren't they? So you can, you, you, when you're writing them as a hero, you, you know, you're not writing a normal person, the person that you would hang out with. You'd want, you're writing a person that you'd like to maybe meet once. But who has saved your life in some nebulous way <laughs> before buggering off and being a hero somewhere else? <laughs> I'd, I'd love to meet Spock. I'd never love. I never want to meet Kirk, partially because that would mean I'm about to die. <laughs> Don't wear the red shirt. <laughs> yeah, um, and partially because I just think he would be just a dick. I'd yeah, just, you know, he'd be so. Uh, you know, he would. He would immediately annoy me. Even even this amazing person, I think, who would. Because of the character he portrays, it's possible. I mean, Anne, do you know the direction that your your book character is going? Could this be a redemption story? Um, I don't think so. I don't know. I think at the moment it's a fish out of water story. But even mm. the way it's been written in the first couple of pages, before she's mm. out of the water, um, 
yeah, it's it, it's not being described brilliantly, I have to say. No. But I'm I'm going to bear with it and see how we go. I think short story writers don't have to write like their characters. Mm. Yeah, uh, because you can treat it as a short-term investment. I, I, <laughs> I, some of my published short stories, I, I've written absolutely awful human beings, but they've been great fun to write. Yeah, they're horrible, horrible people. Yeah, um, but you always put a bit of yourself in, the, <laughs> in doing your <laughs> writing. So, so, so on that bombshell. the world the real alternative fab radio i've been your host ed fortune i've been your co-host siloid the bookworm is a truly outrageous production for fab radio international and starburst magazine presented by ed fortune and siloid produced by a l johnson